the fear or uncertainty surrounding some of these new treatments. Some of that I think is is just related to stigma about mental health care and, and then stigma about these drugs, which are schedule one substances and, and are not legally available in the United States right now. Welcome to FemPower Health. This is Georgie. Today's episode is the first in our three-part series on psychedelics. Today, we feature an insightful discussion with Jordana Davis and Jacqueline Lampert on the policy, ethical practice, and cultural considerations in psychedelic-assisted therapy. Since we recorded this episode, there's been a significant development. MAPS Public Benefit Corporation has submitted the first ever new drug application, or NDA, for psychedelics, specifically midimophetamine for the treatment of PTSD, adding an exciting dimension to our conversation. In this series, we also explore the evolving world of psychedelics and healthcare, discussing the current legal landscape, safety protocols, and the crucial role of education for clinicians. We'll bust myths, highlight the safety measures, and discuss the evolving legal landscape of psychedelics in mental health. Join us as we delve deeper with Jordana and Jacqueline into how this evolving landscape is reshaping the future of mental health care. Thank you so much for joining the FemPower Health podcast. It's it's so interesting how this psychedelic series has come about. It was a I've been thinking about it for a really long time and I wasn't really sure how to approach it. I had read Michael Pollan's history and I knew about his book, but I was like I don't know if that's the right, you know, expert to have on the podcast. And I was talking to a dear friend of mine who is also a healthcare consultant and she told me that I should speak with Jordana. So Jordana, you and I had a call and I thought this was going to be a very simple conversation. We'd do an episode and then we'd, we'd be done talking psychedelics. And you educated me on all these things that I didn't even realize we needed to discuss. And so I really appreciate you educating me on that. And we're going to talk about that today because it's inspired a three-part series. And I'm actually doing series now on lots of health topics because I do think a lot of them warrant more than one episode. And so thank you for helping uh, get the ball rolling on that. So without further ado, before we dive into the topic, why don't we do some introductions and we can take it from there. So Jordana, since I brought up your name, why don't you go ahead and start? Thanks, Georgie. We're so excited to be here. I'm Jordana Davis. I'm the president of the Rocking Stone Group. We're a health policy consulting firm in New York. My background is in the federal government. So I worked for two senators during the drafting and passage of the Affordable Care Act. And we've been working on the policy side of psychedelic medicine for about three years. And Jacqueline. I'll just echo Jordana's thanks, Georgie. It's so exciting to be with you today to talk about this exciting work. Uh, my name is Jacqueline Lampert. I'm a principal with the Rocking Stone Group. Um, Jordana is based in New York. I'm based in Ohio. Um, and I also have a background in the federal government. I worked for also two different senators, uh, including uh, Senate leadership during drafting and passage of the Affordable Care Act. And then once I left the Senate, I worked um, an, a payer on a, in a health insurer and also a provider and have been consulting for a number of years. We consult with a range of different healthcare organizations, providers, payers, advocacy organizations, health tech companies, um, all looking at healthcare from a public policy lens. For those who've listened to the FemPower Health podcast in many episodes, maybe like, hold on a second, you usually have either 
patients who are going through a healthcare issue or a doctor or someone who's researching and hold on a second, what are consultants doing on this podcast? <laughs> so I just want to address what could be the elephant in the room, who knows? But one, I think as this podcast has evolved, you know, women's health has evolved. Like in the beginning, it was all about what are these conditions? And now with social media, there's so much happening with foundational education. But now we're in this place of so many things in all of healthcare is evolving. So what is the landscape and how does that impact us, whether we are a clinician, because I know a lot of clinicians now listen to the podcast, and even as a patient. And so that's really why we're doing um, this series. You know, I alluded to Michael Pollan's book. And, you know, since that's been published, and probably for many other reasons, the discussion on psychedelics has exploded. And Jordana, when we first started talking, you had educated me that there's really a few areas that we need to look at. It's not as simple as, are psychedelics good or bad? It's much more than that. And you you laid out this, this landscape, which is, again, why it's a series. So why don't you start with helping us understand the broader piece of how we need to look at it? Because it does have an impact on so many other aspects for clinicians, patients, researchers, the whole industry. I think that's a really wonderful place to start. You can get really confused about psychedelics out there reading news in the world. So let's make it really clear. We think of psychedelics in four buckets. We call these access pathways. So the first one is the medical model. This is the area in which we work. What do we mean? We mean pharmaceutical companies studying a particular compound through a clinical trial, looking to make measurable improvement on a particular diagnosis. The same way you'd undergo any other medical treatment, or specific diagnosis that was causing you suffering. So we have two pharmaceutical companies that are working towards an NDA, a new drug application to the FDA, that's Compass Pathways. They're studying psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. And then we have MAPS, and they're studying MDMA for PTSD. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, wellness models. If you've heard about Colorado, you've heard about Oregon, this is what we mean. These are states that have legalized a particular psychedelic for use within certain regulatory boundaries. So you have to be at a specific location, you have to be using a specific guide. Some important notes on Colorado and Oregon. You don't need a particular diagnosis to use these drugs in these states. You generally have to use a guide. That guide has done some level of state training, but actually specifically in Oregon, if you have medical training, you can't use it in your work under that program. So it's really not a medical model. It's important for people to know that. But of course, without fail, any article you read about Colorado or Oregon will mention a clinical study. And so consumers have a right to be confused about that. The third is decriminalization. This is advocates you know, looking for use of these recreational drugs without criminalization. And the fourth is spiritual and religious use. So we have federal law that protects certain pathways for folks to use these for religious and spiritual purposes. It's easy to be confused. Our focus is on a medical model. Um, and even honestly, some of the pharmaceutical companies can be unclear about their work in the same breath. They'll talk about culture, well-being, medical, and it's quite confusing for anybody. The wellness legalized, I just want to touch on this one. I, I almost like paused when you said that Oregon is not, sorry, the way you, you mentioned it, I'm like, wait, I don't understand. It didn't even make sense that I can't even repeat what you said because it was so confusing to me. <laughs> so Oregon has created a structure in which there can be legalized use of particular psychedelics within certain regulatory structures. So if you're in a certain location, if you're with a guide, 
um, those are appropriate uses okay. under the state law. Um, you cannot, if you are a guide in Oregon, there's some state training that you need to do, but you're actually, from a statutory perspective, prohibited from using your medical training in your work as a guide. So this is very specifically not a medical model. I think it does get confusing that, so for example, if you are um, a mental health practitioner and you want to be a guide uh, in Oregon, you can take the state training to be a guide, but you sort of have to take your mental health practitioner hat off while you're performing services as a guide in the Oregon wellness model. And I think it can get a little bit murky because a lot of times when these initiatives are placed before voters, the messaging will talk about the mental health benefits of psychedelic assisted therapy, but this isn't a, a mental health treatment. It's not psychedelic assisted therapy. It's really um, wellness access to a psychedelic drug. Thank you very much. That makes a lot more sense. Thank you. And then for Colorado, it's again, more the wellness approval, so to speak. Okay. So Let's talk about the the medical piece of this. In this series, I'm going to be interviewing a researcher who's going to talk about where we are with the data, and his name is Andrew Penn. I'm so excited to connect with him and what else we still need to be researching. I'll also be interviewing Lynn Marie, who runs Psychedelic Medicine Association, and she'll help us understand the nuances of working um, with clinicians and patients, because I know there's like all sorts of rumors on how all these patients hurt their doctors and therefore psychedelics are evil. We should never use them. Again, mixed messages out in the media. So she has a lot of perspectives. Now let's talk about from your expertise, what do you think within this framework are the potential social implications? Because it's one thing to have you know, certain things legalized versus not, and we can make all the arguments on what that should be, but what are some implications that we should consider um, around this widespread use of psychedelics? That's such a great question. And I think it's important to think about the implications maybe in a couple of different ways. You know, when we think about the implications of more widespread recreational use or wellness use, those may be a little bit different than the implications of widespread medical use. Um, and, you know, our work, as I think Jordana said, has been really focused on the medical model. Um, and we really bring, given our backgrounds, a public policy lens to that. And so sort of given all of that, the res I would say, thinking about the medical model, you know, the results from these trials are quite promising. Um, I think we look at some of the trials for post-traumatic stress disorder, and many of these patients don't have PTSD after they go through psychedelic-assisted therapy. Um, many people have their depression symptoms substantially reduced. So I think if psychedelic-assisted therapy performs in the same way, once it's available outside a clinical trial it, to a broader population as it, we're seeing it perform inside a clinical trial, we can be incredibly hopeful about the social implications for reduced suffering from these targeted mental health conditions. I think it's important to remember at the same time that all clinical trials, including these trials for psychedelic assisted therapy, have limitations that can make it difficult to predict how they will be received and how uh, effective they'll be in a broader population. So when we think about psychedelics, 
there have been, you know, a, a relatively small number of fairly racially homogenous research subjects, although the more recent uh, clinical trials have become more diverse. Um, and like all clinical trials, these studies are conducted on a very carefully screened population. Uh, and the people in the trials typically don't have other mental health or physical health conditions because we're you know, trying to target how does this treatment affect this condition. But that's not really the way people exist in the real world. You know, we know um, from other research data that people with mental health diagnoses have other physical and mental health challenges. They don't typically present with just one diagnosis. So I think that we will really still have a lot to learn um, once these treatments become available outside of a clinical trial and what, you know, how hopeful we can be about their impact on a broader population. It's really going to be exciting to see what happens with our technology, the mandates that are happening. So it's even broader than for psychedelics, because it is scary that clinical trials are very controlled and we haven't had the technology we do now to truly monitor real world evidence for a lot of different medications that are on the market. And with psychedelics, I don't know, would you say that it's a greater risk even with psychedelics that the homogeneity, I think, I think I said that right, the homogeneity of these trials and being so specific in how they're, they're um, running them, meaning it's not necessarily the real world. Do you see that it's a greater risk with psychedelics? I don't know if it's a greater risk. This is true of every trial, unfortunately. It's why the federal government is making such a broad initiative to try to improve it. Um, Psychedelics generally actually have showed a fairly positive safety profile relative to some of the other drugs that we use in mental health. So I think it is, it's probably just uh, no different than anything else. And again, this is why I wanted to do this episode series, because you know I, I will say I haven't fully understood, and there's a lot of things that we can try to research, but we can't always realize what all in this world we need to dig further into. And with psychedelics, I think on the surface, people probably misunderstand how they work and can help people. So maybe we can talk about that piece because you are saying the safety profile isn't as bad as people think, but I'm not sure if the general public fully feels that way. The medical model looks like um, other medical models. We've got a psychedelic medication paired with specialized psychotherapeutic support, and we're looking to promote healing of a specific condition. Today, of course, it's only available within clinical trials, but we're talking about broader access. So generally, when we talk about the medical model, and we call it psychedelic-assisted therapy, we have five parts. The first part is patient screening. A clinician interviews a patient, determines whether a psychedelic medication could be appropriate and indicated for treatment. Second piece is medication management. Some patients are on other medications, and they may require dose adjustment, temporary discontinuation of other medications to avoid some undesirable interactions. That can be true of a lot of medications that folks take. The third is called preparatory psychotherapy. So this is where a patient meets with a clinician, builds therapeutic rapport, trust. The clinician educates the patient about what the psychedelic experience is going to be. And then, of course, explaining logistics. Where should you go? When you're going to show up? What should you wear? Um, and any potential risks that are there as well. And then also, which is really important, providing approaches for emotional self-regulation during the, the medication administration session. Many emotions may arise that a person has not dealt with before. They can be bigger and stronger than anything you felt before. 
And then you go to the medication administration session. Today, that's a six to eight hour session. Remember that everything that we're talking about is based on the clinical trials that have gone on. We're not talking about any innovation that might happen in the future. Today, these are six to eight hour sessions. They're typically under the supervision of two healthcare practitioners, one generally a therapist, maybe a second therapist or another staff member. And the care team, of course, remains with the patient through the session until the effects of the drug have worn off. And again, the healthcare team might provide psychotherapy during the session. They might provide other therapeutic interventions. And needless to say, they're monitoring the patient for signs of any physiological, psychological distress, offering support as needed. The last piece is the one that clinicians tell us is absolutely the most important, and it's called integration. It is usually three or more psychotherapy sessions. They're typically conducted in the days and weeks after the medication administration session. Of course, this therapy can go on for the rest of your life. Many people in therapy for the rest of their lives. The provider helps the patient assimilate potential insights that were gained during the medication administration session, process the experience, incorporate the insights into your life. And that's the broad scope of the medical model. So- a question for you then. So this is how the clinical trials are run. And I see such a connection with medical and wellness. I'm, I'm actually curious um, if we're going to see a lot of blurred lines around this, because when I think medical, the historical way that our society works is I'm sick, I go to doctor. Like that's where I think medical. And I feel like wellness, just from a general perspective, when I think wellness, I think proactive, not necessarily going to an MD, just having other ways of looking at my health. But when you're in the medical world, it's highly regulated. And in the wellness, it's less regulated. And so if you don't mind, I'd love to just do a quick comparison here of potential risks. Are all of these steps needed for psychedelics to be safe? You know, a lot of the work that we're doing is really trying to clarify these different pathways and the different risks and benefits of each so that a consumer can make an informed decision. Um, And I I think this gets a little bit to your question earlier about like kind of the fear or uncertainty surrounding some of these new treatments. Some of that I think is, is just related to stigma, both stigma about mental health care and access, you know, seeking mental health care in general, and then stigma about these drugs, which are schedule one substances and and are not legally available in the United States right now. Um, But I I think the the other part of it is there are uh, thoughtful risk benefit analysis that needs to take place if you have some of these conditions that are contraindicated for psychedelics. And so if you go to a wellness model, it is unlikely that that Um, access pathway would provide the same steps that Jordana just laid out for the medical model. So you likely wouldn't have the the rigorous screening um, to ensure that you don't have these contraindications. Um, And then they're there because in at least in Oregon, the guides cannot use their mental health training. There is no psychotherapy because that you need mental health training to provide psychotherapy. There's really just staying with the person who's taking the drug and ensuring their physical safety um, during the time that they're under the effects of the medication. So it the, the pathways are, are very different and there are definite and clear risks and benefits to each. I would add, when we talk about the medical model, we're talking about compounds being approved for specific diagnoses. 
which means that folks in the US who would be eligible need those diagnoses. Um, and of course, we know 40% of you know medication use in the US is off-label, but I think folks would be quite careful and there would obviously be REMS, which are sort of rules that the FDA puts out um, for drugs that have sort of some sort of a risk profile. And we wouldn't be talking about probably early on broad, broad access to these drugs through the medical model. Right. It's not like we're having to necessarily create new drugs because the drugs already exist. It's more the trial of how we use them. Is that correct? That's right. These compounds have existed for millennia. And um, some of the uh, pharmaceutical companies are taking that approach that the compounds have existed for millennia. They're not applying for patents and they're just to use these compounds um, in a targeted way for a particular condition. Other pharmaceutical companies are taking the compounds that are sort of naturally occurring and making minor adjustments to them so that they can apply for a patent. And then it would be just that compound that they're applying in clinical trials to a a particular condition. Um, So that does make this field pretty unique that some of the compounds that are in clinical trials and will be placed before the FDA for approval are not new necessarily because they've existed since potentially the you know the beginning of time. I don't even know how I asked this question, so I'll just ask it. I'll just go with it and ask it in the, the very blunt way. From what you understand, because people will want to know this, are there legitimate nuances from these companies who are trying to patent the actual product? For the consumer, how would all this work? And how do you access the different medications once they would be on the market for the ones separating out ones that are researched and patented versus the ones that have been on the market? At the core of your very important question is that the cost of drugs in this country are absolutely yes. out of control and, they're, and they make treatments unattainable yes. for the yes. large majority of Americans. So what is a huge hurdle that that the medical model of psychedelic assisted therapy has to overcome. We can talk about some of them. We talked about one, which is FDA approval. We can talk about another, which is DEA scheduling. And the third one that is hugely important is insurance coverage. It is the path towards equitable access. And we have the Medicare program, the largest insurer in the country, covers maybe 18, 19% of people. They're a thought leader. When Medicare says they're going to cover something, private insurance companies very often follow. They create something called an NCD or a National Coverage Determination. It would be extraordinarily important if drugs that got FDA approval were able to get an NCD from Medicare. We don't know if that would happen. It's also really important that Medicaid programs, which are state-run health insurance programs that cover another 18, 19% of people make decisions to cover these drugs if they had FDA approval. The third issue is private insurance. Everybody who doesn't have Medicare or Medicaid, aside from a small percentage of people who are uninsured in this country, we've done a good job in the last couple of years to get that much higher. They're on private insurance. It's really important that private insurance companies cover these drugs. The clinical trials that are running now, we've seen estimates that it can cost up to $30,000 to run to do a single course of the medical model, which we described earlier. So it's really important that coverage is comprehensive and available to people so that they can have access to these drugs. Needless to say, the mental health system is rife with people not taking insurance, right? Just taking cash. It won't work. You won't have access to these drugs if people aren't covered with yeah, insurance. No. And is it $30,000 for the whole trial or per person? Per person going through one of those uh, treatment patterns that we discussed. And I would just 
add a little bit about how the applications that will come before the FDA for this treatment are a little different than what the FDA typically sees. So the FDA is, is generally in the business of determining whether, let's just take a drug or maybe a device, is safe and effective for use in a certain population. The interesting thing about these psychedelic applications is that we have some indications that the pharmaceutical companies will be applying for an approval of psychedelic assisted therapy. Now, the FDA is not in the business of regulating what it calls the practice of medicine. This is why we see many off-label uses of FDA-approved drugs, because the FDA says, we've said it's safe and that you can use it and you prescriber are responsible for the practice of medicine and you can prescribe it to whatever patients you think would benefit. So if the companies are applying for approval of psychedelic assisted therapy, it's not just the drug, right? It's the whole therapeutic container, it's called, that goes with it. And that's a different question for the FDA to consider that it, it doesn't typically consider. And then that could impact how patients can access the full course of the treatment, right? If the treatment is not just taking the drug, but having the entire therapeutic experience that goes with it, that's a little bit of a different access question than just, should I just get this drug wherever I can find it? I think the other thing I would say about, you know, patent versus not non-patent, we know that for, for any of these sort of naturally occurring compounds, there is a lot of variation in their potency and dosing. And so it can be a challenge sometimes to know what you're taking and how much of it and that sort of thing. And so I think maybe that could be a, a way that, that manufacturers are trying to, I mean, obviously make money because as you pointed out, this is a capitalistic system, but also to um, get to patient safety. It's, it's so unbelievably complex, and I'd rather just address the elephant in the room with the best way we can possibly answer the question. So I really appreciate a- that. One question that's also looming is, if we get this right with psychedelics, and even when I was listening um, at the conference to all these experts talk about various aspects of psychedelics, um, do we see this future where we could possibly have a system where it's one-time dosage or however often, and how we use these medications could be completely transformed? Like, are we really possibly getting to that point? I think that we can be hopeful of a future like that. I don't know that we know for sure, um, for a number of reasons, including the, you know, limitations um, that that I described earlier, but we are seeing um, patients who go through, and in in some of these clinical trials, they may have three doses, um, which is a lot different than, you know, chronically taking medications and and participating in therapy in a lifelong way. But after three doses, there are some patients that don't have PTSD anymore or have such substantial reductions in their depression symptoms that their life is, is radically transformed. And I, I think that when you have a therapy that can deliver that kind of healing, it is really an ethical responsibility to investigate it further. 
and to see which patients can benefit from this and how they can benefit and then to make sure that they can access it. But I, I do think, you know, psychedelics are showing a lot of promise. There's also so much hype in this field. But I, so I think it's really important to be responsible in the way that we're investigating how these treatments are working in these trials, and then being very clear about which patients we think can benefit from them once they're approved. Back to equitable access then. So we talked about the pathway for how Medicaid and Medicare are really leading the way. Where, I mean, have there been discussions with them yet on approval and access, or have we not even gotten there yet? Like, what's their stance today? I think generally the federal process is an NDA, a new drug application to the FDA, FDA consideration of risks and benefits, approval or rejection, and then it moves to a consideration by Medicare, a consideration of scheduling for the DEA, and so forth. So I can't speak to whether or not there have been sort of internal conversations at the Department of Health and Human Services about it, um, but that would generally be the process. Like there's some people who say, we already know this works. Why can't this just happen, right? And then we need the trials to prove it. But I guess I'd never really thought about it until you explained it the way you did. Is So are we to now understand that we do need, is it only pharma companies or is it other, to go through these trials to be able to have the evidence so that Medicare and Medicaid is comfortable with the coverage? Yeah, that's exactly right. And we mentioned earlier that there are two pharmaceutical companies that are actually fairly close um, that we're getting to the end of this year, but it seems like certainly next year we'll be applying for new drug applications. And again, that's Compass Pathways. They're using psilocybin for the treatment of treatment-resistant depression, and then MAPS with the use of MDMA for PTSD. And right behind that, we have another company that's looking at major depressive disorder. Let's say the trials come out and we are now in the Zen place. Medicare and Medicaid have said thumbs up. We have access. How does this impact the overall healthcare system. Because like, for example, right now, I, I, because of the women's health focus, you know, I see all these femtech companies who are doing telehealth and they all need the OBGYNs and the nurses and whatnot, but there's a sh projected shortage. So I'm like, how is it that with the number of companies trying to do telehealth, trying to have all these OBGYNs that are soon going to potentially not exist, run this? I think now to psychedelics. So Right now, the way mental health works is you have the telehealth provider, you have your traditional, I've got my 45 minute or hour appointment. This is a completely different model. This is, I go to someone for an entire day, but there's a lot of steps that happen in between. I, I mean, have there been models done? I don't know if you guys have done it, where it's like, okay, you know, in order to achieve this, on the one hand, if people only need one to three to five doses, they're in and out of the system. Um, and, but then you have people who have to go every week, once a month to their therapist to get treatment. So like it, it's completely like lopsided with how we work today, correct? Jacqueline mentioned something really um, important earlier about mental health care, and we'll talk about it in a minute. There are, there are so many challenges here that reflect the rest of the healthcare system as well. 
So where do you go in the healthcare system and just sit in a room for six to eight hours? Where does one do that? It's a very real question. Um, are there enough providers? There aren't even enough providers to do therapy. So now we're adding another service into the system. Um, and these are really very real structural questions. There are a couple of models. We would bore your listeners to tears if we went through a couple of other healthcare models that might be um, might be sort of mirrors for this. But I think we don't really have something that looks like this. And this is a, a very, very real question. Well, I, Jacqueline has more I, I think well. you're... It, it's a really smart point to get to the infrastructure investments that need to happen in mental health care generally, um, but certainly for this particular model, which is so practitioner heavy, right? Like we've got several sessions of psychotherapy where we have two practitioners that are potentially spending an entire day with one patient. I mean, we don't have a model for that, right? Like that, I mean, maybe in a surgical setting, but we really don't have a model for that in a, in a mental health setting. So this, this really does require just a lot of um, practitioner time, effort, investment up front. But when I think about sort of the long-term or sort of healthcare arc of a patient, um, we know that patients that have these types of mental health conditions also have higher spending on physical health and other mental health conditions. And so we would expect to see that if we can help or resolve some of these mental health conditions, that then we would see savings on the physical health side. We might see fewer visits to the e emergency room because of mental health conditions. You know, there are other things like cardiovascular disease or diabetes that are associated with some of the mental health conditions that are being studied in these trials. And so if we can affect the mental health side, then perhaps we would see a health improvement on these physical health challenges. And so this, the spending on a patient over the arc of their life may even out or maybe even be reduced because we're getting them the right care at the right time. I really agree with that. And I would add a reminder that we're basing everything on the model of care that's being used today in the clinical trials. Is it possible that you can do this work in groups? Maybe. You do a whole bunch of people at once with a smaller number of practitioners. Is it possible there's a shorter acting substance that becomes available? That's maybe a two hour drug instead of a six to eight hour drug. Those would really change these logistical questions. As you're talking about this, I'm thinking today, based on what we have, I can see a few things happening. One, for probably how one can access psychedelics today and possibly in the near future until we figure out the model, it's probably going to be people who have the money, the cash to pay for it. And yet this can impact so many others. And even for the near term, could Medicaid and Medicare pause this because they wouldn't know how to handle the infrastructure. So I feel like that the infrastructure piece could impact access, but then also I could see people being impatient with, the this whole process and possibly risk going to people who may not be as properly trained because of the limits in access. So I just feel like there's this like wonky access for people who don't have the money, but also for those who do maybe going to the wrong places because we're trying to figure all this out. 
people can't get services in the places where the quality and the value can be demonstrated and they go elsewhere. I think too, we do a lot of things right in the US when it comes to healthcare, but it's you know a big ship and it moves, it turns slowly. Um, and so sometimes when we see these um, new developments or exciting new treatments come forward, we don't get access to them as quickly as we want to. I think we've seen that with a number of new drugs that have come on the market, that the demand really spikes at the beginning and we may have drug shortages or provider shortages shortages as, as everything um, gets evened out. So I, I think there will be bumps in the along the way. Um, and I, I do think to your equity question, I mean, that's been a focus of our work for, you know, our whole careers um, before we started working on psychedelics is really expanding first access to health insurance because we know that people without health insurance really struggle to get the care that they need. And secondly, to ensure that that health insurance is meaningful. And when we're talking about psychedelics, it means that we, we have to see not just Medicare and Medicaid, but private insurers, the VA, all providing coverage of this um, treatment, again, once it is FDA approved, so that, that people can access it. So it, it is really a key question. Um, I think there's also other nuances of that coverage, like what kind of a rate is it going to pay? It has to pay a rate to a provider to make it worth their time to provide this coverage. So these issues won't be sorted out the day that the treatment is approved by the FDA. Um, but I do think the field is grappling with these challenges and thinking through them and, and working to prepare for that day. So today, if I say, I want to try psychedelics, I can, right? Like what's, what's the pathway to access now? If you were interested in being a part of the medical model, you'd need to be part of a clinical trial. And you could go to clinicaltrials.gov and you can look by your location and see if there's a clinical trial near you that you could be a part of. Otherwise, it's the wellness model, correct? If you live in a state where there is you know, legalization under certain regulatory structures, then you could have access through those states. I guess what what has had you both interested in, I know you, you do public policy on so many different aspects, but what has had you most interested in psychedelics specifically? I mean, perhaps the answer is obvious with the conversation we had, because this is just fascinating, like so complex, like and innovative and new. And it's like, how do you answer this question? I think it's so cool. So if I were in your job, that's what my answer would be, but I'd love to hear from you both. <laughs> I, I think for me, that's, that is a huge part of it. Georgie is, you know, we've worked on um, healthcare policy issues for so long. It, it sort of kind of naturally bleeds into these sort of operational issues. And this field presents a lot of unique challenges and really interesting questions um, to think through because it is so unique and it's brand new and it could be potentially transformative. I think that makes it an exciting field to work in. And I think generally, you know, for me, mental health is just a very compelling area of work um, in part because of the incredible suffering that we see from mental illness. This obviously increased over the pandemic, but it was certainly an epidemic before 2020. And we do have treatments, but they don't work for everyone. And innovation in this field has, has been pretty limited. And so I think I 
became engaged and stay engaged because the studies of this treatment show such promise for some populations. And I think I said before, you know, when things show promise, I think we're, we, an ethic, we have an ethical responsibility to study them without stigma attached. You know, we need to kind of scientifically look at, is this working? Who is it working for? How is it working? Um, and I think, you know, there can be a lot of hype around psychedelics, but these studies do show promise. And when we have an opportunity to reduce suffering from mental illness, even if it is for just a certain population, um, that makes this work really important. I was just going to add that, of course, you know, Jacqueline and I are so motivated by our work on the Affordable Care Act and to expand access, but the work has put us in communication with people who feel quite disenfranchised from the U.S. healthcare system. Some of them looked at us, looked at our past work on the ACA, saw us as total defenders of the healthcare system, and that was really a challenging conflict to work through. It gave us a chance to say, we don't think this is a perfect system. Um, we've argued we can help people more, though, by working in the system than outside of it. We don't need to burn it all down. But it was absolutely a challenging space for us to navigate. What What do you see as the, the future here? I mean, I, I, we can make guesses, which is these drugs get approved and there could be challenges ahead with how do we get this system to work because the care model is so different. I know for me, I feel like this bright spot and maybe I'm just being too excited about it is could we completely transform the mental health of the world if we can figure this out? I think a lot of people do approach this work with sort of an almost religious fervor about the transformational power of these medicines. And I'm not sure I'm quite there in terms of changing the world. However, I do think that there are patients for whom these drugs will completely transform their experience of the world. And that okay. makes it in itself useful. I don't know that these are for everyone, but I, I do believe that there are some patients for whom these treatments will be transformational. I would remember that we've had years, decades of a lack of innovation in mental health, and that even incremental changes are really important changes. This doesn't have to change the world to be important. And I think we lose ourselves to some degree. We lose the value of the work when we try to make it that big. It's really important, even if it changes thousands of people's lives and not millions of people's lives. These are terrible, terrible diseases that these drugs are looking to treat. Yep. No, absolutely. Those are fair statements. And is there any advice, and I know you're not clinicians, and so we'll get to the researchers and clinicians in the next episodes, but just if you were to give advice to either a clinician or a patient today, based on what you know from your expertise, comfort zone, like what would you say we need to know today? Um, and then we'll hear from the doctors and researchers after and see what they have to say. If I were a patient or if I were a family member of a patient that had suffered from one of the diseases that are in the most advanced stages of clinical trials, I would wait and, and seek, look for FDA approval and then seek out licensed clinicians who can do that work and give me a real chance of hope for me or my family members. Jacqueline? I, I agree with that. I think that the field um, is working to establish the foundation of um, establishing and measuring quality of care in this space. Um, one of the projects that we have done was leading a 
um, group of experts in um, writing professional practice guidelines for the field. We need clinical practice guidelines for this field. I think outside of a clinical trial environment, I would want those pieces, those foundational pieces that signal high quality care to be in place um, for someone who is seeking treatment for one of these conditions through psychedelic assisted therapy. No, that's fair. And I'm glad I asked the question because, you know, I, I will say just given everything I've been through and the healthcare system, fertility treatments, et cetera, like I kind of have started to go on the side of, I don't really care anymore. I'm just going to do whatever. And as long as it's within the realm of safe, I will try most things. I will say this episode has helped me say, even I would pause and wait for the trial. And I really appreciate how you've educated us on the thought that is going behind this and why we do need these trials to just clarify how we use them. About a year ago, Jacqueline and I started working with a tremendous group of clinician scientists to write professional practice guidelines for the field. These set standards for the way that practitioners should behave in the work of psychedelic-assisted therapy. There are really wonderful, smart, thoughtful people that are working in this field, and I have no doubt that they're going to make progress in improving people's lives. We have to trust that those folks are doing the science and they're going to get it through all of our regulatory structures, and this will be a mainstream part of mental health care at some point. Ladies, I am so honored that you made this time and I'm thrilled with the work that you're doing. You're clearly incredibly talented and doing the right thing. And I'm so excited to see what happens and I'm excited to um, hear what the other experts have to say as well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was so much fun. Thanks so much for having us, Georgie. Thanks for having us. And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge, neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stages ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com, drop us a message on social media, or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations. And a quick note, the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider. It's not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor for health decisions. And remember, the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys, and it's not an endorsement by FemPower Health. Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time, and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.